Before this episode begins, I have some back page projects to tell you about. Let me begin with Pep's City, a new book by Luis Martin and Paul Balus who have been embedded with Manchester City for much of the past three seasons. I've known Lou for years, most of my time in Spain. He's not only a fantastic storyteller, he has contacts that you would struggle to believe because in the modern era, journalists aren't supposed to get that close to football people. He does. In fact, he's close friends with Pep Guardiola and all his extended family. Indeed, Pep, along with some colleagues, wrote Pep's only, to date, autobiography just after he left Football Club Barcelona in 2001. Lou and Paul gradually earned total access to Manchester City and you'll see that reflected in the description of the structures, the idea, the atmosphere, the people, the anecdotes. I think along the road they both fell a little bit in love. It's a good page turner. It will bring you right inside the heart of this project telling you about Guardiola's emotions, ideas, when he's tired, when he's ebullient, who helps him, which players fall in and out of favour. It's everything you'd want from an inside story. Whether you're interested in City or separately in Pep Guardiola or any of his superstar players or how a huge operation like that looks from the inside, you'll find plenty in this book that you didn't know. Next up is Astro Ball, The New Way to Win It All by Ben Reiter. Even if you don't speak baseball, if you're interested in where any pro sport and especially elite football is heading in terms of recruitment, data and optimization, then you need to read this inside account of how the worst team in baseball were turned into serial winners thanks to a strategic revolution. It's Moneyball, the next chapter. And while I have, while I have your attention, are you, are you paying attention? Neil and Martin, who produce this show and whose voices you probably love hearing every now and again on the question and answer sessions, they've got another podcast called Between the Lines. It's interviews with sports writers who explain the stories behind a book or a piece of long form journalism. It's the medium I like most when you get somebody to explain how something works how it came together, how it was constructed, how it was planned. I love hearing things like that. It calms me. It interests me. And I guess that there's a thread of that running through what we try to do in the big interview in that when we get elite coaches or footballers sitting down with us, we want them to explain. We want them to tell the stories from inside out. Lift the lid, I think it's called. This is most certainly what um, this new podcast that Neil and Martin produce does successfully. It's interviews with sports writers who tell the stories behind a book or a piece of long-form journalism. A new season of this podcast is running right now. It features excellent writers like Oliver Kay of The Athletic, Andy Mitten, who interviewed Diego Maradona for 442. And the season will close with a documentary about a much-loved football book, The Miracle of Castel di Sangro. Subscribe now, please, to Between the Lines by Backpage and get the new season as it goes out, plus great archive interviews, including Henry Winter, Mike Calvin, and some fella who wrote a book about Spain's tournament treble. Here's a little teaser. Don't usually start like this, but complete this list. Peter Shilton, John Hollands, Ray Clements, Pat Jennings, Martin Peters, Ryan Giggs, Mick Mills, Gareth Barry, Alan Ball, 
than whom? What I've read out to you is a list of the top nine players who've made the most appearances in England's top football division. Number 10 is Steve Perryman, who is exactly 100 appearances ahead of the next still playing active football, James Milner, um, in the list. So behind Steve Perryman come lots of legends, Gary Speed, Ian Callaghan, Frank Lampard, Frank McClintock, Dave Seaman, Bobby Charlton, Neville Southall, David James, Norman Hunter. Way down there even uh, is a Hartford um, turned down because famously because of the hole in the heart case. Um, 545 A's of Hartford. But I'm I'm getting lost in nostalgia now. So Steve Perryman, who um, not only is number 10 in the all-time appearances in England's top division, he played 866 times with um, Spurs in all competitions. And I went back into my memory banks to try and work out, was he a central defender? Was he a fullback? Was he a midfielder? And then I began to research the... The, the beginnings of his career was playing against um, Bobby Charlton, George Best. I wanted to know about Jimmy Greaves. I wanted to know about Bill Nicholson. Mauricio Pochettino was recently removed from Spurs, having done an utterly exceptional job in terms of changing the club's personality in terms of the football that they played, in terms of taking them to their first Champions Cup final ever, in terms of earning them something like 250 million euros in four years of Champions League football alone, yet he didn't win a trophy. Others have won trophies since Bill Nicholson, but he's the man, the modern era at least, um, where standards are set. Bill Nicholson is infamous, not just amongst um, Spurs fans, but across anybody who was alive at the time when Spurs were swashbuckling, when they were the first side in England ever to win the double of the league and the cup. And therefore, Steve Perryman is a witness to changes at Tottenham, a witness to what English football was like. He turns out to be a brilliant talker. Um, Maybe I say that all the time, but then, hey, maybe we choose our guests well. Um... I want you to listen to Steve Perryman and, and dip into, for most of you, dip into the past. Dip into a, a brand of football, a type of man, um, a club, all of which have changed out of recognition. They don't make many like Steve Perryman now. Articulate, hard, fair, competitive, a really good footballer and somebody who can talk as well as he played. He has a book out now, Steve Perryman, A Spur Forever, My Lily White and Blue Life. It's exceptional. It's packed with... It's the type of book I used to buy when I was younger. Packed with memorabilia, photos, uh, letters, program notes, um, material from a life spent richly playing football and winning fans everywhere. Infamously a nice man, utterly listenable too. This is Steve Perryman on The Big Interview. So on the occasion of the publication of Steve Perryman, 
a spur forever, my lily white and blue life. On the big interview, we've got the, the privilege and something I'm looking forward to very much indeed of stopping and speaking to Steve Perryman about a, a, a football life of at least 50 years because we're at or around, Steve, the 50th anniversary of your debut for Spurs. A football life brilliantly spent. And I can be a witness to the fact that you still can't walk 10 paces or at least ne- this neck of the wood in this area. expressing their love for you. In this area. And, and you typically are still stopping and chatting and photos and autographs because that's, part, that's been part of your attitude to a life in football. But it, it, it's, been a, it's been a good old life for you. Fantastic life. Um, I've enjoyed almost every minute of it. Mm. And you have such great highs. I mean pick the cup up at Wembley and then they go and do it the year after and play with the likes of Ardelias and Hodo and Greaves and Gilzine and these types of men, football men, pure football geniuses. Good phrase. You know, to be in the same dressing room as them and, and they listen to your opinion because they know you're coming from a slightly different angle on things. And, uh, you know, I was always a team-orientated player and sometimes players, and I understand that, are more individual in their approach and they're thinking more about their own game and their own performance and their own career moving forward. And uh, I appreciated all of that. And you know what? They appreciated me as well. I understand why. And it's, it's made clear in the, in the book, your foreword is by Glenn Hoddle, that everybody who knows you still, still calls you... Skip, which is short for skipper, and it means leader. And we, I, I, I'd like to think over this next hour and a bit, we'll be able to either get you to talk about, or probably just it will ooze out, people will understand your leadership qualities. But I'd like to start by asking you to be a witness to something, because right now at the club you love most, or the club that made you, you say for better or worse, there's been upheaval, there's been some years of incredible achievement, recent upheaval. But the thing that everybody's striving for was authored by a man that you worked for and that you were close with. And he's a byword. Bill Nicholson, Bill Nick, is a byword of glory times. But very few people listening to this will have seen him working. He worked in an era where there wasn't constant... Sky Sports coverage. Sure. Managers weren't, he at least wasn't, there weren't deliberately personal, media personalities then. No. So do me the favour, Steve, because he influenced, he picked you for your debut and you stayed close even after you left the club. Build us a picture of Bill Nick, please. So Bill Nick was a giant, not in stature, he was fairly sort of average size, weight. Height, but the intensity of this man was just the amount of levels, the depth of him, the thinking that he put into the game, the passion that he spoke with, the unbelievable depth of knowledge that he had about this game. Mm. And you know, I sometimes, I sometimes wake up in the night and I think about something that Bill Nick said about the game. So, obviously, I'm in love with the game as well. And 
I'm not sure Bill Nick gave me my love of the game, but he certainly enhanced it. And Bill Nick would say things like, Steve, you can will the ball to yourself. And I'd say, what do you mean, Bill? It's a typical ball up to our centre forward, their centre half. You're pushing on the back of your midfield player. You're going to go left of him, you're going to go right of him to read the, where the bits are coming down. It might not come down, it might go further on. If Gilly's jumping, he's going to flick it on. But someone like Chiv, who don't really want to jump, <laughs> it's going to come back down. When you make your decision, you can will the, the ball to come to you. And it say it with such sort of passion in his voice that you, you couldn't argue with it. You wouldn't want to argue with it. You just took it. You know, it's say, when the ball goes out of play, when the ball's dead, come alive, son. Come alive. Been in. You know, we saw the goal the other night with Spurs, the quick throw in the, the ball boy. from the ball boy. It still applies to today. Well, for example... I'm pleased that you're explaining that because the first time I heard that concept was a man that we're going to talk about, a, a, a cup-winning teammate of yours, Graham Souness, because you were in the side that won the Youth Cup for Spurs. And, and Graham was on the programme and he was talking about Find the Dope. And I was like, that's just Find the Dope. And I, I, I get so, I'm overly excitable. But I had my nose, I was in Boston, I'm watching him on Sky. I had my nose pressed up against the television screen. They go, I, I must hear you explaining that. And he did, and he said, Paisley and Shanks said to us, ordinary teams, players will take a little breather just before halftime, maybe a throw-in, whatever, and you find out which one of them's a dope, and when he's gone to sleep, we take advantage of him. Now, y- yours is the same concept, but slightly different. When the ball goes dead, good players come alive. Mm. But it means that you can be sharper, you can be mentally quicker, you can be more ruthless. It also means that you can, you can find... The, what do they say about a chain? It's only as strong as its weakest point. You can yeah. look for the weakest point. Absolutely. So Bill was teaching that football is for the smart guys. Smart. Stay alive. Keep, keep fresh. Yeah, we saw it in the important goal for Liverpool. Uh, was it semi-final? The yeah. quick corner kick. Bush. Barcelona can go asleep. Yeah. Guess what? Bristol City can go asleep. <laughs> Bournemouth can go asleep. Barcelona went asleep. Yeah. So look for that moment. I mean, it was, it was all those good ethics that Bill Nick put into us. Now, he didn't only put it into me, he put it into the group. So say there's 15 apprentices. We all had the same messages, I think. Now and again, he'd just pick me out. I'd pick Phil Older out. I'd pick Suey out. To, to explain a certain thing. So, of course, that was personal to you. But in normal terms, it was, it was a general message. You know, the first, the first words I ever heard when I went into Tottenham were, keep it quick, keep it easy. Meaning, keep the ball moving. Just keep it moving. Don't take the piss out of the ball. Just keep it moving. The ball moves quicker than anyone can run. And those type of moments, uh, th- those type of comments... So you just build up this log in you of your understanding of what this great man wants. I don't think there was any sort of fantastic uh, blackboard sessions as such. Although he did make a point of when he watched the special youth games, mm-hmm. played at White Hart Lane or he might go to an away game when we'd been picked at, you know, not that far away. Uh, he always did a blackboard session with us the next day. 
the, the whole group. And that's where we're getting the same messages. And you never went home thinking, today I've learned what the game's about. I, the door is open. Let me go through the door and I'm going to be a player. But it was just drip, drip, yeah, drip, keep coming. And then you know what? You get disciples. And I was a disciple of his. Now all of a sudden I'm giving the drip messages to young players that are coming into the Tottenham team, like Paul Miller in later years and Galvin and Roberts from Gary Brook and Ali Dick and all these. You know, I'm now on his firm as per... <laughs> hey, what are you looking at the floor for? Those type of messages. And, and basically that's what the game was about. It, it really was just get on with it. Don't get above yourself. Work hard. If you can't run, you can't play. Mm. But it also allowed the special to have his moments, the Jimmy Greaves, the, the Hoddles, the Ardeles, the Gillies. Bless him. Three things about... Okay, and Gilly and Chiv got mentioned there. That's Alan Gilzine and Martin Chivers. Um, three things that I must ask you now, because as a Scot, when I worked in London, and it might, you might think this is nonsense, but people used to say... Your accent, you lot, your accent does something for you. Oh, I don't know if that's true. It presents us as, in certain walks of life, authoritative, because whether we're right or wrong, we Scots always talk as if we know. Sure, sure, sure. There was a certain edge in a certain era where if you're a Scottish accent, you were held to be maybe threatening or or whatever. Bill was Yorkshire in one of your penultimate London clubs. What did his voice sound like? Did his accent have any impact on that? intangible personality you were describing because he wasn't six foot four and mm. maybe he wasn't a, a bully or so in other words the, the physical package looked ordinary whereas the man himself was far from ordinary what the, was Yorkshire was yeah. Yorkshire a part of Bill's the players yeah the players had a name for him and I don't believe anyone was ever brave enough to call him it in front of him but between us he was called Granite his face was cut out of stone, I think, as a Yorkshire-type thing. He was, he was tough. He was hard. He was uncompromising. He could put you down in a sentence. If, whether you're Jimmy Greaves or Steve Perriman, he could, he could nail you with something. His voice was demanding. And I, I spoke to, to one of his two daughters one day, and about Bill Nick and what he meant to us in our development as a daughter or a young player or whatever. And we both agreed the same thing. We never wanted to let him down. We just would have been the end of the world if Bill Nicholson had believed in us and we let him down. We didn't deliver. Doesn't mean to say you're going to win every game. Doesn't mean to say you're going to pass every exam from the daughter's point of view. But you know what? Maximum effort you, must be you there. You give your whole lot yeah. for him behind you. You did. And it weren't like he showered you with gifts. It weren't like he gave you more money than what you were worth. <laughs> it weren't about that. It certainly was not about that. Bill was a hard taskmaster. You know, there was negatives there as well because, you know, I, I was frightened to death of doing anything on my left foot, crossing with the left foot. You know, you'd cross one with your right and then you'd go behind the goal and end up on the other side and you'd mm-hmm. end up crossing one on your left. Wow, you got it wrong. We'd take your head off. And 
that's not good for a young player, to be honest. And I, and I thought he was too stern on it. So I'd be doing a U-turn and going back on the right side again. Which, of but course, when the ball goes dead, good players come alive. So coming alive by going back onto your right foot was well, pretty that's me smart. Thinking. That's exactly. me thinking. So, uh, I mean, one of the ways I learned to kick a ball, because probably when I left school at 15, albeit playing for England schoolboys, I don't think I passed the ball over 20 metres. And, you know, you'd watch telly and uh, Bobby Charlton's bosh, 60 yards. Didn't always get there, by the, but <laughs> 60 yards. You think, How's he doing that? Anyway, we would be in the gymnasium, small gymnasium in those days. And I'd be one of the people having to drive the ball in for Gilly to come in and head it against the wall. There's markings on the wall of the, the, the goalposts. Sometimes goalkeepers in there, sometimes not. And Greavesy and, and Chiv and Mike England, for instance. Do you know what? If you didn't stay on that ball out of nerves or whatever, oh, where's it going? Mm. And it sailed over their head, they'd go, what's going on? So you, you put it right by just the, the embarrassment of, so you know what? You drive, you put your toe into the ball and you drive it. And, okay, it may not reach head height, but I'll tell you what, it's not going over their head. <laughs> there so, so they'd be all right if they could just volley one in. They might be even pleased with that. Yeah. <laughs> but... You just put yourself right. And I think that's a lot of players' improvement, who you're training with and what they expect of you. Demands on you. What their demands yeah. are. And, yeah. and it's a major, major part of development. Well, reading your Lily White and Blue Life, which is put together with love, and it's genuinely a beautiful book that people need to strive to find and buy and gift. And I mean that. It's, it's reminded me of... I already know that Bill Nick was like this, but like Shankly was probably cut from granite too. Busby, Jockstein, sure. etc. There's, there's an ilk of, of man. But I read once years ago was something that, as a younger man, stunned me and I thought was unfair, which was that Shanks, a great inspirer of loyalty, would cut players dead when they were injured, would, would treat them as if they didn't exist. And in your book, there's a little, just a little passage where... Because in every paragraph, in every page turn, there's, a, there's an anecdote or, or a beautiful image and it makes you go, wow, and you stop and think. Is so you talk about, about Bill Nick in the, in, 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 in the, in the, the casualty room, room. In the treatment, the treatment room. room. Tell us. He'd walk in, immaculate. Always fantastic creases in his trousers down the front. His hair was always... There was not one hair out of place. Perfectly manicured. But I'm not saying that he spent time on himself. He just, that's how he was. He was a, he was a, a proper fit man. But anyway, he'd walk in the dressing room, four, four beds, and he'd just look. And he'd go from one to two to three to four. <sighs> and walk out. <laughs> Not how you're doing, not how, you, how did you do that. No question about the injury, but basically what it was just putting on you was, you're no good to me. On that bed, you are no good to me. I better go and deal with the ones who are going to do me some good. We now maybe associate your mental well-being or your level of adrenaline or how much you feel adored to the way that healing can be accelerated. 
you lived in a stern regime under him, but that kind of made you feel good when an injury, which was probably an impact injury, and therefore of no, you know, sure. you haven't caused it. And the manager's kind of looking down his nose as if to like like Shanks did to go, yeah. oh, you've let me down. Well, hold on, boss. Somebody kicked lumps out of me, and, I, and I've twisted an ankle. Not my not my fault. I went on a um, end of season tour. I don't think I'd ever trained with the first team. And the way of putting across, maybe I've said it in the book, but the way of putting that across, that I'm in that squad, was I finish at Cheson on the top pitch was like Wembley. We'd play in the A-team, Metropolitan League. We'd, we'd always win home games, four or five. Walking off at the end, Eddie Bailey would say, Perryman, come here, come here. Someone tells me, I don't know if it's true or not, but someone tells me that there's a list up in that dressing room and your name is on the bottom of it. And it's a possible list to go to America. How is that possible for you to travel with the first team? Now, these days, that would be, Steve, listen, you've had a good season. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're doing good things. You're being noticed. And you know what? You've got your chance. You're going to go to America. Well done, sir. They could not say well done to you. They just couldn't say it. And you'd almost apologise for what he's saying to you. Oh, I, 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 I don't know. I, I, I'm answering his questions. Why are you on that list? I, 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 don't, I don't know. Well, just make sure you see the list because there might be something important in there that you need to know as per the, the trip. I go on the trip and I end up, I'm supposed to be there for one game and go home because Gilly's joining us from the Scottish squad playing somewhere. And uh, David Jenkins, player that was swapped with Jimmy Robertson to the Arsenal. They got sunburn on the top of his feet. Well, can you imagine how that went down with Bill Nick? <laughs> uh, it's tea and sympathy and an arm round his... No? No? Sunburn? Home. <laughs> Get yourself home. And so I stayed. I stayed. So I played every game. Mullers was away. Alan Mullery was away with the England team somewhere. And apparently this is Muller's story, not mine. Mm. Uh, Bill Nick phones him after three or four days when he's got home. He said, Alan, how'd you do? He said, well, Sir Alf Ramsey was very pleased with me and said, you know, I was arguably the best player and I played in all the games and whatever. He said, well, that's good, Mullers, because I've found your replacement. <laughs> Who? <laughs> Steve Perryman, he's, he'd be your replacement. He's fucking not taking my place. <laughs> So he's, he's rightly so brought him down a peg or two yeah. by just naming me. Anyway, it's we, shrewd though, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, we start pre-season. For the first time in my life, I got an injury in pre-season. A kicking muscle injury. You've got to pick one up at some stage. Yeah. And they have the squad picture that's going to go out to all the clubs for all the season for the, for the match programme. And I wasn't in it. There's probably 18 in this squad picture. And he came up the side of me and he said, you know, Steve, if it weren't for that injury, you'd be in that picture. <laughs> and I actually said, I remember this, and I very rarely talk back to him. I said, but I wouldn't want to be injured, Bill, would I? As though, as, you know, to stand up for myself. So, but anyway, so he just planted these things in you. You know, you're no good to me being injured. And, and I don't know if that's why I came to be such a good 
handler of injuries. I mm. certainly didn't ever rush myself back. Mm-hmm. I could listen to my body. You know, there's lots of reasons why you don't miss games. One is you want to play. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest one of all. But also listen to the opinion. You know, I talk about you go to a lawyer, lawyer's office, or you know, someone of that that ilk, a specialist. You don't walk out of their office and say, "Mug, not listening to oh, that." Thanks. You, you. You take it on board. Yeah, yeah. That's what they're trained to do. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I could take instruction, but I also listen to my body. You're a good storyteller too, because you've you've nicely linked into the third thing that your anecdote about Bill Nick. Man, I had to ask you, this man, Mr. Bailey, because you also talked about the sort of, if you call it a gymnasium or a room, where you all had to hit the targets on the wall. I think it's quite famous, but I also think it's brilliant. That it was a demanding thing, often volleys against a circle or a rectangle. You, or... you loved doing it. You loved you did, doing didn't it. You? you loved doing it. Oh, it was a test of your skill every day in that gymnasium. And it would end up with a one or two touch game. That didn't sharpen you up. Watch out. And uh, that's where you actually sunk or swam. Eddie, Eddie would. You're going to talk about Eddie's doing the, the exercises. It's well, interesting that you're already just, ahead of my question. I love it. Just little tubby man. People would say that he was the, the best one-touch passer. And I've heard that in later years about Alan Ball, for instance, and I'm sure he was. And uh, Eddie was part of the push-and-run team. Little Cockney Push character. and run team being... 50-51. Spurs, Spurs yeah. team. Yeah. They got out of the second division in those days and won the, the title the next year. That must have been some team. Under Arthur Rowe, Bill Nicholson in the team, Ramsey, Eddie Bailey and uh, Burgess. People said to me Burgess was a better player than Dave Mackay. I mean, I knew Dave Mackay? Yeah, I never witnessed it, so oh. I can't tell. But the old-fashioned... Coat men, they used to wear coats, not tracksuits in those days, the trainers. They'd say to me, Steve, from Burgess, what a player, better than Dave Mackay. Wow. Which just gives you a sort of level, oh, that good. Gigantic. So, um, but Eddie would just, look, I want you, this is what I want you to do. So, just, just move the ball, don't, don't hit a dead ball. Just make sure it's on the move. Just hit it on that line. And on the second bounce, I'll volley into the circle. And he'd go like this. And Eddie couldn't sort of run, couldn't jog. He used to ride a bike when we were on the country runs, the pre-season. Little fat sort of ass about him. Could do that just time after time after time. And it'd give you a link back into the history of the club that a player could still do that at his age. Now, he looked old to me. He, he, he might have been... He was born in 25. Okay, but he might, he might, so I, I would say mid 40s, 50, yeah. maybe 55, and he could just do it wow. every time, every single time he did it. And uh, it sort of put you in your place a bit because you think, yeah, but I can play. Mm. I could, could do that every time. I was going to say, not everybody around you, even the first team, could be doing that every time. Absolutely. I don't think. Absolutely. We, we, we bless him, Ralph Coates. They bought Ralph Coates. And it was unfortunate, Ralph, because it got out that Ralph Coates was Bill Nicholson's wife, Darkie, lovely lady. Ralph was uh, 
Starkey's favourite player. So, of course, when there was a bit of iffy team selection going on, they'd say... He's on the end because... Starkey's picking the team. Mm. So, which was a laugh. Of course, they had too much of a respect to build that that could possibly happen. But, but I mean, he would be doing his exercises and this fantastic player, when he's playing against Burnley, against Tottenham Hotspur, would sort of take your breath away what he could do. And now he's in your own camp. He can't hit that line. And he certainly can't hit that, that ball. <laughs> so... I suppose, you know, in a way, it's like practising your tennis, your, your, your serve. You know, you're not just saying get it in. You're saying probably in the end, get it in that foot square with this technique into that far corner there or different technique, that far corner there. You know, you're not just getting it in. Everybody can get it in. Well, I wish Mrs Nick hadn't picked Ralph against Aberdeen in the UEFA Cup. <laughs> I was going to come on to that anyway, but you, you've... Sp- uh, was, was Fergie, was Fergie manager? No, uh, it'd be Jimmy Bonethrone. Jimmy Bond, yeah. 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 I, I, I'm, my nickname is Bumper Graham, so I'm Arthur... Arthur, Arthur Bumper Graham played Drew Jarvie, yeah, David Rob, Willie Miller, who was Willie Miller. on Friday night. You scraped a 1-1 at Pataudry, and, and, and I think we got lost towards the... McGrath got a couple late on at, at Cold, eh? Ooh, Cold up there. What? Thank you. That's a test. It's our only quality. That's <laughs> <laughs> a test. <laughs> well, you survived it all right. Cold and oily. Damn it all. So, again, you set me up for something that I needed to ask you, because you don't make your, your debut against Manchester United, but you make your debut in a season two years after they've won the, the European Cup, famously. So Matt's rebuilt the team. And, and I just look at this now. So in your debut season, you play with Pat Jennings, Anthony Want, Mike Englands, the nice one, Cyril Knowles, Mullers, um, yourself, Roger Morgan, Jimmy Pierce, Martin Shivers, the great Alan Gilzean and still greater Jimmy Greaves. But you play against Alex Stepney, Aberdonian John Fitzpatrick, yep. Ian Ewer, Tony Dunn, Frank Burns, I think, played for us as well. Yes. Carlos Sartori, David Sadler, Bobby Charlton, Brian Kidd, John Aston, Georgie Best. And you mentioned Bobby. So if again I can call on you to be a witness. At that age, which is, I don't think you've turned 17. You're still 17, I think. Yeah, it's 17. It's maybe your 6th, 7th, 8th game um, for the first team. And you are playing against Best and Charlton and Kidd and Aston and Sadler. Pick one to tell me about, please, Steve, because you already mentioned Bobby. He won your country, he helped win your country, the the World Cup, a couple of years earlier. I'd like to know more about what it was like to be on the pitch against him, to think, what do I do to stop him? What do I have to do to compete? What did he do that we now don't understand? Law must have come later. I think Dennis is injured. Yeah, yeah. Two different uh, scenarios there. George Best, for instance, I vowed never to dive in on George Best because the moment you went in, he's gone. So stay on your feet. Just stay on your feet. You might throw it away or whatever, but just don't bite because he'll do you. Because you're watching it on telly every week, night time, not intensive of the full game. He knew I wasn't going to bite him. He knew. So he, he, he tries something different against you as well. Bobby Charlton, I... Didn't ever want to challenge. I just didn't want to tackle him. This is like a god. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tackle Bobby Charlton. You're kidding. And I'd like to think I was a fair tackler, it, uh, unless someone 
was kicking me or kicking one of my team, then fair play's gone. No, no need. But in that era then, Manchester United weren't for kicking. They were for, for playing. There's some famous games. Tottenham Hotspur against Man United. The two five ones ever before I got in the team. 5-1 at Old Trafford, 5-1 at Tottenham, the Jimmy Greaves walk-in goal. These are wonderful players. These, these were just true superstars. And Bobby Charlton had this era of being like a... I think he, was, he played like a sir before he was a sir. <laughs> he was majestic. Actually, sometimes I thought I could win it. I would go in mm-hmm. low mm-hmm. on him. And he'd go, ooh... <laughs> and sort of jump out of the way, which was a little bit like um, Trevor Brookin. I'm not saying jump out of the tackle, for sure. No, no. But just to avoid it. Ooh. And uh, I loved him. I loved him. It he, he was like a completely different era to me. I don't know how old he was as against me. But um, just quality and poise and balance and the eye to... See that 60-yarder. If, if ever you were abroad, if I'm 16 years of age and I'm abroad and I meet a foreigner and you can't quite get across where you're from, you'd say Bobby Charlton. Ah, England. Yeah, English. OK. So he, he sort of... He demanded respect of you, how he did his, his stuff. He, I mean, the, the power of his shooting, the, the, the range of his passing... And the, the drive in his legs, when he, when he got a, a, a scent of that goal, the drive before he struck the ball. Of course, and, yeah. I, and I used to see him kick it, and I used yeah. to see him do this with his, with his wrists. And, and actually, you've got to recreate that tension in your ankle. So you've got, what you've got now is your arm, your forearm straight out, your wrist cocked with your... Yeah. With, like a batsman would keep a, so a, a straight back. Yeah, uh-huh. so there's a tension. Yeah. There's a tension there. And that tension's got to go down to your, your ankle when you strike that ball. So Boom. you're not just coming through it with your leg. There's a release of the foot through Absolutely. the ankle twist. And you're staying on the ball. And that means it's struck. The ball stays struck. Well, that, that was Bobby Charlton to a T. And I've spoke to players before about doing this mm-hmm. because it just sets your mind right that that's the feeling you've got through your ankle. Oh, you replicate it so your, bo- your, your muscles in your wrist, you know that that's what you have to do with your yeah, ankle. It's almost, a, you it's almost a muscle memory. Yeah. Or, or uh, it's not a muscle, but it's, you've got to get that feeling of tension through your, through yeah, your yeah. toes, through your ankle to be tight. When you strike the ball, you so you phrase, stay on it. Well, you, you also said you used a phrase where the you know the, when he shoots the ball stays short, stays hit. Absolutely. Charlton's shots, powerful as they were, are not from a massive back lift. No, and not a toe either. No. But the ball almost gathered speed yeah. when it should have been losing velocity. Yeah, he used to stay on the ball longer than anyone. It was like he was kicking four balls, and the, the famous quote about the goalkeepers keeping your head on it. Keep your head until it's gone. But Bobby was like kicking through this first ball, but through four. That's beautiful. Okay, I'm he was that. a true, truly class act. He was a class act, and he just had this majestic sort of air about him. And whenever I met him after, I'm sure we're coming to talk about Japan. But I happened to be in Japan, and 
worked there for five years with Aussie. And I met more people while I was walk- working in Japan because my name is on a list, a sporting list. So if we had guests over in Tokyo and they had li- like a little do for him, I'd get invited. So Bobby Charlton's come over with his wife because I think he's back in the Japan bid for the World Cup. And the invitation comes through, chance to meet Bobby Charlton, wow. And, I, and the great timing of it was, say, say this is on the Wednesday, on the Saturday my team had won the championship. And he used in his speech the fact that there's an Englishman in the room. He said, I've just only found it out since I've been here. Steve Perriman, his team, Nespoles, have won the, won the championship. They've won it with the, they've won the Fair Play League. They've won the championship. They scored the most goals. They conceded the least goals. So I th- it looks like he deserved to win that championship. I mean, Bobby Charlton's saying that about you. You're walking tall, aren't people. you? And then speaking to him after with his wife, they were just so engrossed about me having two young children. They're two young daughters and they're Japanese and now they were learning at school and the stuff that they'd been through growing up in Japan because we took a six-month-old there and a, a, had another child while we were there. Your pride in what you said about you comes shining through. And certainly whenever I've met him, I've found him charming, lovely, humble, determined. And you can get determined. a tiny sense determined. of the greatness, um, recovering from 58, being part of the driving force to go to 68 and onwards. 66. I think most Scots, Dennis aside, because Dennis still can't talk about it. Is that right? Oh, yes. Dennis will not give. Um, but most of us um, recognise how difficult it was to achieve that. Some Scots, me included, get excited the fact that there are now two generations of young, really highly talented English footballers who've won World Cups at junior levels who know how to not only use the ball, but manage a game, Absolutely. which I really like. Yeah. That been, for all the talent your country's produced over the years, sure, you've a got little a bit, bit of that management. Yeah. Now it's exciting again. I think I'm going to be right in saying, because I need to speak to you about a different continent from Japan in a minute. I need to speak to you about Europe. Right now, as somebody who loves Spurs, you must be proud of the new training ground, which is world-class, the new stadium which has been built at a gigantic cost. While you and I were growing up, or while you were playing, we saw clubs nearly sunk by stadium projects, both Leeds and Chelsea. Every time. Um, To some extent, Manchester United too. Yet Spurs have have not only managed that, they've managed to make huge sums in the Champions League, burnish their reputation, play good football, go to a Champions League final. But something's still been lost for all that. Mm. And that's the, the ground you knew and the ground that you must have loved. We make a habit every so often in this series of asking somebody about the ground they knew. So for those who never visited either the White Hart Lane that's gone now or the White Hart Lane that you knew, you must have been going to White Hart Lane before you were even an S-form or or certainly before you were a professional footballer. If you could do us the the, the favour of talking about what the lead-up to getting to, the streets around, the people, the noise the smell, what White Hart Lane was like in the 60s? It was totally dominated by the football. The whole area was dominated. The street sellers, the, even the shops on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday with no game on, there was a, a football vibe in there. We would go into a cafe, for instance, 
You could go, turn left, there was a Spurs cafe. You could turn right, there was a Spurs cafe. You'd get your cup of tea and sit down, and someone would say to you, you ever going to have a shot, Steve? And these <laughs> days you'd say, what, a shot of coffee? <laughs> that wasn't around in those days. But anyway, that's, you were just, it was an intensity of soccer. It was like a, a cloud, but a nice cloud hanging over you that meant you went to the bank, the bank on the corner, 200 yards down the street. Tottenham just eked out of their blood. There, there was no chance of anyone saying, well, if they did have a little feeling for Arsenal, they'd never mention it. It just, it wasn't there. It was a proper, I, I, I call it a working class palace, Tottenham Hotspur, White Oak Lane. It was, my first thing about it was going to games because they'd give us tickets and I'd go with my brother or my dad. And therefore, you're seeing this place full of faces, full of noise and full of expectancy and joy because they normally won at home. Of course, they did. And then I saw it on training nights being, oh, it's cold. It's dark. It's, I wonder what's in that corner. <laughs> I wonder if there's any mice <laughs> in this state, which there obviously were. It was never opulent, but it was serviceable. It was when, when, for instance, Bill Nick decided, because that's what the manager did in those days, he decided, let's change the changing room. Let's upgrade it or whatever. It was always done, not flash, but serviceable and proper. You, you wouldn't go, oh, this is a dressing room. Wow. It wasn't. But you'd say, this is solid. This is a solid place where you come to work. And... You know, eventually, when I get into the team, Bill Nicholson is training in the home, changing in the home team dressing room, which I've, I've never heard that before, a manager changing with his team. So I had a long way to travel from West London to North London, North Circular and traffic and all that. And if I was late, he'd never find a player, never. But you had to walk in front of Bill Nicholson if you were two or three minutes late and his eyes would be burning in the back of your head. And you wouldn't look round. <laughs> you wouldn't look round. Just the fear that he might say something to you meant you weren't going to be late again. You just weren't going to do it. I wouldn't it, have thought you were late very often. No, no, but but sometimes there was nothing you could do. I, I always, have to, always had this argument. Because we used to train at the, the, the ground most days, mm. not at Chesant. So Chesant was, like, magnificent. The, the surfaces were great because we very rarely trained there. <laughs> Training ground, we very rarely trained at the training ground. Of course, pre-season we did. But I would say, you know, all of a sudden, there's a, there's a chemical spillage on the A10. Training's cooled off. Training's cooled off. Well, because no one can get in. OK, so I would turn up from the North Circular and think, where is everyone? Oh, it's OK, the training's off because chemical spillage, whatever. There's something happens on the North Circular and I'm late... <laughs> The training goes on, <laughs> and I'm going to be dead for it. The world's not fair. Oh, dear. <laughs> and, of course, I thought once or twice, Bill Nick said to me when I joined the club, Steve, you live where you want. As long as you join us, you live where you want. And I'm not a digs type of person. And uh, so I wanted to be in my family home, and maybe I felt safe there, I don't know. But 
But that meant that I had a two-hour journey there and a two-hour journey back on the train. And you are dead tired. You're 15 years of age. You've just left school where you'd fall out of bed into your school and just get home and put your feet up. Now, all of a sudden, you're leaving home at seven, getting home at seven. And this four hours added on to your workload day. Wow. We're here because we've already got the utmost respect for you, for your playing ability. I, I get narked because I was old. I am old enough, not was old enough. I am old enough to, see, to have seen a lot of you playing. And although my understanding of football has grown, the more football people I speak to once my career started, as a kid, I knew what I liked and you could really play. It wasn't about not being injured. It wasn't about like, sure. the club saying, no, he's a good club man, you could play. But it was an achievement seeing off even a young Graham Souness, which she did. And in our interview with Graham, he remembers being miffed that he wasn't playing and going knocking on Bill's door. And, and even Suey then was a little bit wary about... Effectively, even if he chose to move on to Middlesbrough, you saw Graham Souness off at that stage. In a way, I didn't. In a way, I didn't. Because, because what I brought to that team was energy and legs. And it wasn't planned to be that way because I was like an inside forward. So I was a passer. Do people want to know what an inside forward is, Steve? Not, OK, inside forward would so be... So you'd, you'd, you'd play... Left wing, right wing, centre forward, inside left, inside right. Ins- yeah, absolutely. Just play in off, off of a winger and your job was to service the wing with the ball. You'd, you'd be an option for a wing half who you'd link in with. Sorry. And the right back. Wing ha- okay. Do them a turn. Wing half. I mean, seriously, do them a turn. And four. What's your formation? Um, two, three, five. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got two centre backs effectively. Yeah. But they were called, I don't know if they were called centre backs. Centre half. Centre halves. And, well. And your wing halves number, number are your, your either side of the one in the middle who's in front of the two. That's your wing half and your wing half. And you're in front of the left wing half, and the inside right is in front of the right wing half, and your, your wingers are wingers, yeah. seven and eleven. It was built to give angles. It gave you angles before you even moved. There was angles to play and pass. I'd get it and see, the, see a pass and play, play the pass. That's why Tottenham liked me. I was easy to play with because you knew when you were getting the ball. I wasn't a Glenn Hoddle that could look and say, there's a pass, but... Do you know what? There might be one better over... Oh, yeah, there it is. There. If I saw it, I gave it. Very simple, which is what Tottenham were about. Keep the ball moving. Quick, easy and accurate. And so... But when I got into the team, the team was struggling. They had too many Chiefs and not enough Indians. They could all play. They were all British internationals. They could all play with the ball. Other than Mullery, not many could get it. So guess what? Someone's got to get it. And I got, I got thrust into that role. At 17. At 17. So I learned my trade on the stage. That's what I say about me. I learned it on the stage. And you know what? When I, when I put my foot into a tackle and won it, the crowd give me the feeling like a goal scorer gets when he scores a goal. And what they're saying is we like that. Mm-hmm. Give us some more of that. And once that became my trademark, I had to sort of keep delivering it. And I could cover ground and I wasn't switching off. I wasn't dying when the ball goes out of play. Come alive, stay alive. And 
sometimes I've seen really old footage and I cannot believe how much I ran. I ran and ran and ran and ran. And sometimes I watch football today and I think, what's that player stood still? The one thing that Souness could not bring to that team was my energy. Of course he could bring a bit of flair and a bit of skill and a bit of this. Graham Souness was not the type of player that you know. That's what I'm going to say. Wow. Because he didn't mind a tackle as his career went on. To start with, never went near a tackle. Trust me. I mean, he could compete. Of course he could. He wouldn't. He wasn't pulling out of anything. That was the biggest word in football in my era, bottler. Yeah, 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 you yeah. couldn't be a bottler. Whoa. You, you had to earn the right to play on abs- any given day. Absolutely. Every single day. Absolutely. So, so Graham was, was not aiming at me. Graham was aiming at Muller and Peters, two English internationals. So that was Bill Nick's answers. Yeah. You're, not, well, you're not getting him out of the team. You don't, you don't run enough. So you're aiming at them two. How are you going to get in front of those two? In his time, he... he I spoke he, to Graham a lot about this. He, yeah. he, he says to me that no one sat him down and said, no. be patient, just, you're a good player, you're going to be in soon. Just, you know, be patient, just yeah. keep working, you need to do a bit more of this or a bit less than that. Graham, Graham got sent off in the, the, the Youth Cup final. Cup final, yeah. And you think Graham Souness has sort of gone over the top on someone or done something. No, they would be kicking him because he was the sort of uh, the football hub of the team. He could play, Graham. He could, he really could play. play. So they'd be kicking him to put him out the game, and then eventually Graham would get so frustrated. Off the ball. Yeah. Not in the tackle. Yeah, yeah. And get sent off for that. So, you know, when you read the, 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 the stats, uh, so that's got sent off, and you think, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's what he does. No, completely opposite reason. So in a, it's nice to say and think I fought him off. I never. Well, you, OK, I was going to say you're... I did in terms generous, of, but you've explained why nicely. Yeah, you I did in terms picture. of a number in the team. I know what you mean. But as per the fit, he would not have fitted in. And people don't to what was needed. People of a younger age don't realise what you're saying when he had Peters and Mullers in front of him because they were class. Thank you for listening to the big interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true, Graham Hunter, and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us, at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here endeth the lesson.